Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of the Real Estate Investing Foundation Podcast. Today, we are super excited for another episode where we bring Greg Dickerson on the show. Greg, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And a little bit about Greg. Greg is an entrepreneur, real estate investor, and developer. And over the past 20 years, he has brought, developed, and sold over $200 million in real estate, built and remodeled hundreds of custom homes and commercial buildings, and started 12 different companies from the ground up. Wow. So there's a ton there, Greg. So with that and all that said, let's just take it back to the start. How and why did you get started in real estate? Well, you know, so all that's a fancy way of saying adult ADD, right? So uh, <laughs> I like to stay busy. I like that. Yeah. Uh, but well, no, I can't. Because she'll, she'll say, oh, that's, uh, that's me every day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, hey, I can focus when I need to, but I like to stay busy. And uh, so I started as a builder. So I got my start. There's only two things I've ever done. I didn't go to college. I went in the Navy right out of high school. And I worked in restaurants and I worked in construction uh, before the military and after the military. And I was working, on a, working in a restaurant, and there was a guy doing an addition, and he hired me to come clean up after him and paid me 20 bucks. And I'm a hard worker, so he really liked you know, what I did. So I kind of followed him around after that and as his helper and general laborer, and I started learning some things and learning trades, and it was in commercial construction. And uh, you know, just kind of went from there. And in 1997, uh, I moved to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, the number one owner demographic for the Outer Banks properties are New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and right. a lot of the you know, summer vacationers come from your territory. So uh, anyways, I moved there in 1997 to open a restaurant, and then I ended up getting into construction as a handyman uh, contractor. It was just me, my truck, my tools, and doing odd jobs and, and whatever I could find, and did a little uh, uh, handyman work for a friend of mine that owned a restaurant, and then built a deck for a guy, and then started trimming new construction houses. And uh, so my beginnings uh, there uh, were as a contractor. I owned my own home, but I wasn't doing real estate as a business. I think that was my third home that I'd owned uh, by the time I made it to the Outer Banks. And, uh, you know, I had two small kids. And it was a really interesting time. This was 1997. So it was pre-boom. Sure. And, you know, as you know, there was a little slowdown from 90 to 95. And that's kind of when we bought our first home. And, uh, you know, didn't make any money buying and selling that. So I didn't really think of real estate as a business. It wasn't really a thing back then. Like wholesaling wasn't really popular. There were maybe one or two people teaching real estate investing back then. Carlton Sheets uh, was, you know, probably one of the originals. There was a guy named Russ Whitney. Uh, Dave Lindahl was probably the only guy in the multifamily mentor space um, that I would, I would study and listen to once I, you know, started uh, moving on in my career. But anyways, I started doing little handyman jobs, did 250000 my first year. And then I started doing bigger projects, growing my company, started building spec houses and larger uh, million dollar beach homes. And, you know, within seven years, I was a $30 million company. And, and I started all those other companies along the way that were kind of ancillary to the uh, construction business. So I had a painting company, hurricane shutter company, plumbing company, uh, electrical contracting company, um, I had a pool spa landscaping company. And it was usually somebody that was either working for me or selling me something. And they said, hey, I want to start my own business. So I'd come alongside them and I would help them uh, by capitalizing them, buying tools, equipment, vehicles, whatever it was, doing the marketing, putting systems in place in their business, and helping to grow and scale uh, their business, and I'd sell it back to them. 
So that's how I did all those other companies. So it really wasn't literally me doing it. Um, you know, what I am as a coach and a mentor, a leader. So I would, I would uh, usually somebody would come to me and say, I have this idea or, you know, uh, they were already doing business with me and I would just uh, come alongside them and I would, you know, coach them and mentor them and grow them. And uh, when the time came and they were ready, they would come to me and I would sell the business back to them. So with the mentoring you're doing, let's talk about the growth. So you grow to a $30 million company over seven years. Right. How do people avoid the step of getting stuck where maybe they start as a handyman and they start and next thing they know, seven years later, they're running around still to Home Depot every morning, just chasing tools and chasing jobs and they can never get themselves out of the position. How, how do they follow the step to get that growth to become a large company and not so much just a man day on day job person? Well, first of all, you got to know yourself. So not everybody is cut out as to be an entrepreneur, to be a business owner. You know, a lot of people like doing what they can do themselves and they want to keep it there. So the first thing is to understand how you're built, how you're wired and what you're, what you want to do. Uh, you, you know, I've made some, probably the biggest mistake I made in growing my company uh, over the years and other businesses was to take people that I thought wanted to be successful. Cause you know, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, we want everybody to succeed. We want everybody to grow. Right. And we assume that anybody who has their own business wants to grow, but you know, they all don't. So the one thing that, that you got to do is understand yourself, understand others and understand the desire. So the key is everybody that I did uh, business with or anybody that I helped in business and the people that I help now, they come to me, they say, Hey, I want to grow. I want to do this. And then I have a lot of people that say, you know what, I'm happy where I'm at. It's just me and one or two people, or it's just me doing everything. And I just help them become more efficient at what they're doing. But, you know, that's really where it starts. So if you do have somebody that wants to grow and they want to get out of the day-to-day and they want to really scale their business, then, you know, what the first step is to become a leader, delegator, motivator, and uh, step away from the day-to-day management. So what you have to do is you have to find people and you have to coach them to success. You have to let them do their job. And you have to be able to delegate tasks and let go of that day to day. And that's really the hardest thing for a lot of people to do is to become that business owner, that business leader and delegate and let other people do things. Uh, you know, that's how I grew my business. So it started out with just me, my, you know, doing everything myself. I hired somebody to help me in the field then I hired another person. Then they could do the jobs and they didn't need me in the field anymore working day to day. So what I ended up doing at that point, you know, I mean, I was doing everything, sales, bookkeeping, I was doing physical work in the field. So uh, when I hired my second employee, that's when I was able to step away from the job site. And then I was just running materials. I was still doing the sales, still doing the bookkeeping. Then I reached a point where I can afford a part-time bookkeeper, brought that person on that took the bookkeeping off of me. Then I could focus on running materials and doing the sales. And then I hired a third employee, And at that point, I could split crews and get multiple jobs going. So then I hired a field superintendent to run the jobs, handle the materials, do all those types of things. And then my focus was on getting more work, bringing more work in and scaling the business. So you kind of have to hire ahead of the business and you have to kind of just take that leap of faith, take some capital, invest it back into the business to hire that position. And then you got to, you know, go grow the business and, and focus on what as a leader you should be focusing on, which is bringing the business in, doing the marketing and coaching other people to success and letting them do their job. So for someone listening that's wearing all the hats right now, how could they identify who who should be that first hire? Well, you know, it would depend on the business and what they're doing. So in the real estate investment business, um, you know, if you have somebody that's actually trying to do the work on the houses themselves, the first step would be to outsource that and hire either a general contractor to do the work for them or hire sub crews and put the hammer down. So that's the first step. For some people, it might be administrative. 
Uh, for some people, you know, the book work takes a lot of time depending on the business. So that a lot of times is the next uh, piece you need to add to your business. If you're a wholesaler and you're trying to scale, or if you're a real estate house flipper and you're trying to scale, uh, if you're doing multifamily syndication, the paperwork can bog you down and take a lot of time. So that would be something that could be outsourced. So it's really, you got to look at what am I the best at? What do I enjoy doing? And what's holding me back from growing? And it's usually, like you said, it's they're spending time picking out lights at Home Depot, you know, picking up two by fours, whatever the case may be, you know, those are, those are the tasks that can be easily delegated to a, you know, to a contractor. And the way I operate now, I outsource everything. Uh, so I hire general contractors to do all my work for me now. Uh, you know, I've got uh, an executive assistant that's virtual. She works from home, does her own thing. I use realtors to list properties for me, even though I'm a licensed real estate agent. Uh, I use realtors to do all my, all my listings. So I focus on what brings in the most, you know, that, that brings in the highest and best returns on my time. And uh, that's finding deals and bringing capital to those deals and creating value in those deals. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about that. Today, your core business, um, is it focused predominantly in Virginia? And is it now doing rehabs, new construction? Where's your focus? So I'm from the Outer Banks all the way up to DC. So um, I'm in multiple markets. I'm in the Hampton Roads area. Uh, I'm in the Richmond, Virginia market and the Northern Virginia market in the suburbs around DC. I don't do anything really in the city. Uh, and I do uh, do deals down in the Outer Banks. So I do, uh, I flip houses, I buy, you know, renovate, sell them. Um, I do new construction spec houses. And again, I have general contractors working for me doing these things. So all I do is find the opportunities, bring the capital, create the value. And I have a system for all my houses. I have a color palette, I have selections. You know, all of that is just, uh, you know, down in a Word doc that I just send out. Uh, and the guys that, that, uh, that build for me, they know what the selections are. So it's, it's automatic. I don't even have to say anything. They know my color palette, the whole nine yards. And I do infill stuff. So very rarely do I do houses side by side. So I can do the exact same house, the same floor plan, the same fixtures, the same finishes, you know, because I'm doing them in different areas. Uh, so, uh, you know, once you have something that works and the buyers like, you just kind of stick with it and you, and you let it roll. And then there's economies of scale with the cabinet suppliers and granite suppliers and, and things like that. They can buy ahead uh, of your purchases if they know you have five, 10 projects coming down the pike. Uh, so it helps bring those costs down and everybody kind of knows what they're doing. So uh, I also do land entitlement flips. So, um, you know, as opposed to doing the complete full subdivision land development, I'll find parcels of land. I'll determine the highest and best use of that property whether it's a commercial uh, use, multifamily use, or residential subdivision. And then I'll get all the entitlement work done. Uh, in other words, I'll get it approved to break ground on whatever that is. And then I'll turn around and sell that to another developer. And, uh, you know, as opposed to bringing it out of the ground myself, I'm, I'm not really on the commercial side bringing a whole lot of stuff out of the ground right now. It's extremely difficult and cumbersome to get things through the approval process. Um, so I kind of focus on that typically takes about two years to get something approved and then it's going to take you another, you know, six to eight months to get permits and start bringing it out of the ground. So I would rather just get, you know, create the value, turn that over to somebody else and move on to the next one. Unless it's just a really, really good deal or a really unique opportunity, then I'll go ahead and bring it out of the ground. But for the most part, I'm doing all that front leg work for other developers and, and, uh, and getting out of it. And then uh, the third thing I like to do is find existing buildings that I can uh, repurpose uh, whether it's a mixed-use building, an industrial building uh, that you carve up into flex space um, or, you know, mixed-use being commercial on the ground floor and uh, residential above or office uh, above, you know, a, a retail use on the ground floor, uh, things like that. I really love to take old buildings and, and repurpose those. 
So a lot of different directions we can go here, right? Which is, which, yeah. is where, which is where the fun is. Let's talk about market selection. You're in various different markets. When you open up a new market, what metrics are you looking at? You know, so yeah, so the different markets I'm in, Outer Banks is a resort rental market, so that's a whole different animal. And the only thing I do there is, is residential single family. Uh, the cool thing about that is it's a summer vacation rental destination. So with a spec house, uh, you put, you build it, put it on the market. If it doesn't sell, you can rent it and it generates rent like a small multifamily property. So they're really good cap rates. They have really strong rental income, um, depending on what size of property you're doing there. So that's a, that's a model in and of itself that I've just done my entire career. So it's, it's, for me, it's easy. I, I know it. And it's just something that I keep going, you know, three to five to 10 deals a year down there, totally outsourced. You know, uh, like I said, I don't, I don't spend much time on it at all. I go down there probably, you know, once a week, once or twice a month, just, just to kind of check things out and see what's going on. Uh, the Virginia beach market. So anywhere else uh, that I look at deals, whether it's residential or commercial, I go where the demand is. So I look at where people want to be, and typically in a lot of areas like your area and the D.C. area in Charlottesville, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, um, and pretty much any other market in the country, there's going to be an urban center uh, where, you know, what's happening is gentrification. So people want to come back to the urban centers. Brooklyn, New York's a great example, um, you know, where some of that has happened. And, you know, there's a lot of, of renovation going on. There's a lot of mixed use development going on. There's a lot of residential gentrification going on where a lot of older houses that had fallen into disrepair, people are now coming in, buying those, renovating them. And they want to be close to the, to the urban center where they can walk, you know, to all of the amenities, all of the downtown environments. And you see a lot of activity going on around there. And that's a really cool opportunity to get a hold of an old industrial building and convert that into loft apartments and commercial uh, you know, restaurants and retail and things like that. So uh, a lot of, a lot of unique opportunities with, with that kind of thing. So I'll look at that and then you can find the suburbs, suburbs around the urban centers. So if you want to wholesale or flip houses, you know, there's a lot of markets where it's really easy to go in uh, to these, these suburbs where there's thousands of homes that are basically identical. So the metrics are very easy to identify, but in any market you go into, whether it's commercial, residential or, or whatever, you know, you want to look at uh, the metrics of the market. You know, what are the, how many properties are available for sale? How many days have they been on, on the market? You know, what are they selling for list price to ask price? And, uh, you know, those types of things. So, you know, it's pretty easy to evaluate markets, but, you know, you really you want to go where the demand is. You want to go where the growth is uh, and you want to get ahead of the curve uh, with some of that uh, gentrification that's going on around the urban centers. That, that's really hot right now. Yeah, that's great. And when you're talk, when you're focusing on these markets, what's a core marketing strategy you like to implement throughout these markets? For so in a lot of the areas that I'm in, I've built you know a network and a reputation over the last 20 years uh, with people that owned property on the Outer Banks coming down. So I just developed relationships. So I stay in touch with um, you know with my network and I let them know what I'm doing, what I'm looking for. So that's the number one way. I get more deals through networking than anything else, especially on the commercial side. You know, on the residential side, you know, there is a little bit of marketing there. Uh, I still use the MLS. I still get deals on the MLS. And, you know, I've got a formula for that. Um, so what I look for there in the residential markets and commercial, I look for vacant properties that have been on the market for a long time and have had price reductions. And then I'll go in and I'll make an offer uh, where it works for me. And, you know, I probably get 50% of them. So especially right now, the market's kind of changing. Things are shifting. And uh, if you get vacant properties that, that typically need a lot of work that have been for sale for a while um, and had a couple of price reductions, those are, those are great targets. And I've had a lot of success with that model. 
you know, I've done the direct mail uh, thing in the past. I don't do a whole lot of that. Um, and, you know, I guess other than that, uh, you know, just, just networking, you know, I send emails out to realtors and uh, let them know what I'm looking for. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's really, and, I, and the kind of deals I focus on are a little bit bigger deals. So I don't have to do a whole lot of hunting, uh, especially on the residential side, on the commercial side, same thing. I've got a network of commercial real estate brokers that, that kind of know my parameters and what I'm looking for. I'm a 10 cap or better, you know, kind of a guy, unless there's a very unique opportunity to reposition something. So, um, you know, I know of a storage facility that uh, was purchased recently and the guy paid a five cap. And then somebody said, Hey, you know, why on earth did you pay a five cap for a storage facility? He said, well, he said, it, it may appear that I paid a five cap. He said, but we're in the business. We have thousands of units. So we knew right away it was being mismanaged. It was being undermanaged. It had a high vacancy so that we knew immediately we could come in, fill those vacancies, manage a property, increase the income. And we actually really bought a nine cap, you know, after six months. Um, so, uh, you know, those, those are opportunities as well that get overlooked just because something has a low cap rate doesn't always mean it's actually a low cap rate. If it's, if it's got the value add play. Absolutely. And looking at these three strategies, you're working on flipping and building land entitlement, repurposing. Let's take the repurposing. What's, what's one of the most, the project that comes to mind, it's, it's your favorite uh, use of this strategy. Well, on the repurposing on the commercial side, um, you, you know, so there's a couple strategies there. One, I really like taking industrial warehouses that are kind of on the outskirts of these urban centers and carving them up and doing flex space. And, you know, one of the really cool ones is, is just an open warehouse, you know, uh, 20, 50, 100,000 square foot, you know, it can be any size. And something that's really popular is to go in there and do open space, uh, co-working uh, studio space for like artists, sculptors, um, you know, one guy in there's a glass blower, you know, things like that. Uh, you can, you know, like a startup incubator kind of thing. Uh, so that, that's a really cool thing to do because it doesn't take a lot of money. You can leave the space open and you can move people around so they can grow and expand. And it kind of feeds that entrepreneurial bug, you know, that I have of wanting to start companies. I love building companies as well as uh, doing real estate deals. And, you know, so it gives me an opportunity to kind of live vicariously through other people and kind of help them grow their business and, and get them started and get, a, get them into a space that they can easily expand without having to spend a lot of money. So that's, that's one, you know, type of project that's really cool. And I mean, you know, I've taken an old dilapidated warehouse that was all boarded up that people drive by every day and don't think twice about it. And, um, you know, take that thing and, and go in there and just, you know, clean it up, get rid of the weeds, you know, uh, take the boards off the windows. Hopefully, the, you know, if the roof is in good shape, um, but you just fix what you need to fix. Typically, you can buy those for pennies on the dollar, you know, uh, if they've been sitting there a while. And that's a great driving for dollars kind of thing you can do to find those deals. And, uh, and then you just really start small. You go in there and, and find some, you know, small owner operators to go in and, and help them expand their business and, and utilize that space. So. Um, you know, and you probably see a lot of that in your market as well. Sure do. And uh, what's something in your business right now that you're actively working to improve on? Uh, my business overall. So really what I want to do is start uh, scaling the size of the deals that I do. So on the commercial and multifamily side, I've, I've done smaller deals in the past, typically under 5 million. So I'd really like to start growing that and start doing the 20, 50, you know, million dollar deals on the multifamily and commercial side. I think there's going to be a real opportunity with interest rates rising. Uh, you know, to be able to take advantage of some assets that are going to reset um, here in the next two to three years. And, uh, you know, the capital is there looking for those deals. So that's really, you know, my focus moving forward is to, is to you know, that 10, 20, $30 million, you know, range versus, you know, the 5 million and down. Um, I'll tell you another cool repurpose uh, deal that I've been working on 
that's a lot of fun is taking uh, the old flat top hotel. So we're in a student housing market here. And then we have the William and Mary down at Williams, Williamsburg, VCU in Richmond. So usually around those universities and university towns like that, um, and in other areas, you can find those old two-story, three-story flat top uh, hotels. So, um, you know, those are a lot of fun to take and convert them into studio apartments or to create affordable housing out of. You've seen it done a lot with the old uh, motor lodge, one-story motor lodges, you know, on the outskirts of town. You'll see people take those and turn them into, you know, studio rentals. But um, there's been a lot of momentum in that uh, hotel conversion uh, to studio apartments. And uh, I was working on one recently. It's about a 29-unit deal. So I'd like to find some bigger, uh, bigger ones of those. I did a project for a guy that had one in Williamsburg um, that was a, a much larger uh, project. But that was a, you know, for a fee kind of a thing. It was his, his property that was in the family a long time. And I think he had converted a hundred room hotel unit into like 60 studio apartments. So that was a really cool project. Sure is. And looking at the change in direction here where you're going to move in or you are in the multifamily space, but look for bigger deals, what kind of deals or what kind of assets are you focused on for multifamily distress BC? We're talking uh, ground up. Where's your focus going to be? Yeah, I'm not interested in ground up right now, although you can get some really good financing, but you know, I have a lot of friends doing that and it's a long time, you know, to get that thing through the pipeline. I mean, it's, it's three, four years to get it approved, get it out of the ground, get it leased up, you know, before you can do anything with it. And um, so I'm a value add opportunistic. So I'm looking for distressed. I'm looking for, you know, if it's, a, you know, you can find a class A property that's distressed, right? So, so the A, B or C doesn't really matter uh, when it comes to, you know, value add and uh, repositioning when it comes to opportunistic, then those are typically going to be B, C and D properties that, you know, are still in good areas. You know, I don't like to go into risky areas. I still like to stay in good areas, but maybe it's neglected. You know, the, the deferred maintenance hasn't been kept up, you know, poor management, you know, just whatever reason. Uh, so those are the type of things I like to focus on, on the, uh, on the multifamily side. Are you going to stick with your core markets or will you enter into different markets when you go into a different space, more into larger properties? Yeah, I'm open to, to any market, you know, that has growth and that has stability and where the asset is going to be in demand. So there's a lot of markets right now that are under pressure. There's a lot of development in the pipeline in our area around, you know, major universities. We've got thousands of units in the pipeline in Charlottesville. Uh, Richmond, Virginia is saturated. Uh, so when you go into those markets where it's competitive and it's saturated, you got to have something unique. So if I go into Charlottesville or Richmond, Virginia, and Charlottesville is very small, very small market. So the opportunities here are, are really limited. But, you know, Richmond's a little bigger. Um, D.C.'s a little bigger. Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads areas uh, are a little bit bigger. You know, typically you can find some unique um, opportunities there um, on a, you know, mid-size scale. Um, there, there aren't really huge assets in those areas. Uh, most of those have been built really in the last 10 years. Now, I, I want to transition a little bit. So, so you, you spoke at a number of masterminds, investing groups, events. You, you, you've had a, a lot of information out there. What, what's a topic that you like to focus on that you, you find best translate to maybe someone that's looking to start in the real estate? Well, you know, for people getting started, there's always that conversation that I find interesting in debate of buy and sell versus buy and hold. Um, and, you know, whether or not to use private money, hard money, you know, things like that. Um, and, you know, recently I went to a, you know, a big wholesaling mastermind and I tell you the number one challenge everybody's having in that world is construction, you know, getting contractors and, uh, and getting good contractors. Uh, that was a big challenge that they're all having. And they're also all having challenges with, 
you know, hiring, training, and retaining good employees, you know, when they're trying to scale their, their wholesaling and their flipping businesses. So those are always interesting topics to me, especially the, the, when it comes to single family, whether or not to, you know, hold those things and rent them or, you know, just to, just to flip them. And then on the flip side, do you do a full renovation flip or do you just wholesale? So those conversations are always interesting to me. I don't think there is any real right answer uh, to that. It just depends on the personality, the individual and what their goals are. I mean, there's, I've got a lot of friends and, uh, and peers that like to hold everything, uh, single family. They love running single family. I know people with hundreds and hundreds of units. Um, I know people, I'm one of them that doesn't like to own those. I like to sell, you know, I like to sell everything. I, I don't like, I'm not a long-term hold on, on pretty much anything. I like to be a landlord of cash, <laughs> you know, uh, cash doesn't give you a whole lot of problems. Sure. And, uh, you know, and I think, like I said, here in the near future, there's going to be some real opportunities if you have cash and you've got dry powder. So um, that's just me. Uh, I'm a transactional guy in and out. And, um, and then there's people that, that, you know, like to focus just on flipping contracts. So uh, it's a really interesting debate, really interesting discussion. And the leadership topic, topic, you know, of how to hire, you know, find good employees, hire, keep them, you know, things like that. I mean, I've done that my whole career. You know, for 20 years, I've had at least a staff of 15 or 20 people. And I've just recently in the last, you know, year and more particularly last six months kind of wound all that down to where, you know, I'm, I work out of my house, I outsource everything, and I'm not really interested in building a huge staff at this point in my career. I'm, I'm just kind of, like I said, I, you know, uh, I want to accumulate cash, accumulate larger assets. You know, if I hold anything, I want it to be the larger assets that, that are hedged against any kind of a downturn or any kind of a, you know, a vacancy uh, situation, um, you know, those types of things. So. You know, just getting started out, it'd be, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a landlord? Do you want to be a flipper? You know, do you want to wholesale? And, and it's just really up to the individual. So people on that frame of mind, right, and they're going to grow their company, what are some, I guess, processes they should put in place or the mindset they should have to be an efficient leader to build a team around? Well, you got to develop yourself as a leader. uh, And what that requires, number one, is you have to enjoy serving others and helping others and pouring into others. I mean, that's really, really the key. As a leader, you have to be sincerely interested in the success of others. And you got to do everything you can to help them, give them the tools, training systems and support to be successful. But the most important thing, and this is where, like you'd asked about earlier, this is where most people fail in terms of growing and leading an organization is you have to provide clear direction and no uncertain terms exactly what's expected and when. People need to know exactly what it is they're supposed to do, what their metrics are, how you're gonna measure that, and then you gotta hold them accountable. So you, know, you can lay out goals, tasks, and things like that, but if you don't follow up with that individual on a regular basis and measure their performance, and, you know, reward the good performance and, you know, reset the poor performance and, you know, redirect that, um, you'll never get anywhere. You know, people need something to shoot for. They need to know where they stand. They need to know what's expected of them and they need to know what good performance looks like. So as a leader, we have to model good performance. We have to reward good performance and we have to uh, redirect and goal set uh, when, you know, those goals aren't met. That's absolutely great. And I've found as we've grown one of the points that's really stood out to me is that when employees aren't reaching a certain metric, it comes down to, well, was it the employee wasn't reaching that metric? Or was it not, I'm not clearing the expectation and not really setting the direction that they need to get there? And, and the learning process was learning that it was, it was me not giving the clear direction, the clear expectation, setting the right metrics and having the accountability um, that was not allowing the employee to really 
reach that that new paradigm that they were going for. So that that was a big part for me to really just understand from my side was that, okay, yeah, uh, it was me not being clear with what their role was just to keep them accountable for. And when I did, was able to set that in, allowed them to have that success rate. And then, of course, you have to reward them for it. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and as leaders, um, you know, you have that pyramid, right? So what you got to do is you got to take that CEO, you know, COO, president, vice president, you know, uh, managers, and then, you know, uh, line level employees. You have to flip that pyramid upside down to where the CEO is actually at the bottom. And, you know, that the job of the CEO is to serve everybody in that organization, um, you know, tools, training systems to support, but more, more importantly, that clear direction, and then measuring that performance and providing the feedback, you know, the feedback is breakfast, you know, is the breakfast champions, I always say, and uh, it, it's really amazing how many times in an organization something goes wrong. And when you take a good, honest, sincere look at that as the leader, you realize what you just said, man you know, I just didn't lay it out clear enough. And, you know, what's interesting is a lot of people have systems in their business. They have the software, they have the technology and they have the systems. You have to take everything you do from the expectation level of an employee and put that in a system so that they know exactly what the steps are, exactly what they need to do and exactly what it looks like when they're doing the right thing. Absolutely. Great. It's also repeatable too. people move on for, you know, maybe move. And so if you have that employee who was there was great. And now they leave for whatever reason to new opportunity or move, you put a new person in there. You don't have to go through the entire process of finding all the, all the platforms you had set up for them. You've already put the processes down on paper and you can basically have them learn that very quickly without having to go through all the hopefully time spent putting that process together. So yeah, exactly. You know, so the mark of a true leader is how well your organization runs without you and it should run arguably better without you than it does with you. You know, you should be in the way (laughs) when you're running a really efficient operation. You know what I mean? Your job is to go out and create opportunity for your people, keep them busy, keep them employed. Uh, You know, so it it really should function like a well-oiled machine when you're not around. And, you know, it's like I always say, the old mantra is, you know, uh, you got to work on your business, not in your business. My mantra is you need to work on the people in your business because they're the ones that are working on your business and in the business. So if you work on the people in your business, focus on that, develop them, then you're going to work yourself out of a job. And that's really, that's really the first thing. The second thing is a lot of people have trouble just letting go of control and delegating. So if you're going to hire somebody, if you're going to hire a professional and you're going to pay them well, and you're going to put them in a position to do something for you, then the last thing you want to do is do their job for them or tell them how to do it, right? Once you've laid it all out and you should be looking for pros, you should be looking for people that know what they're doing. Uh, The fastest way to grow and scale is to find professionals or experts in the field that you're in doing what it is you want to do. You're going to get there much quicker. That's how I grew my company from 250,000 to 30 million in seven years was I, I went to the other larger building companies that were there before me and I hired some of their best people, brought them on board and bam, instant, Uh, you know, we had an instant construction company just add clients, right? So all I had to do at that point was focus on bringing the work in. I already had the thoroughbreds that knew how to run the race. They knew how to get it done. So find winners, coach them to success, but most importantly, let them do the job that you brought them in to do. Let go of the control, delegate the task, be okay when they make mistakes, give them the opportunity to make mistakes uh, because that's that's how they're going to learn. That's how they're going to get better and that's how they're going to grow. So that that's probably the hardest thing for people to do is to let go of that control because they feel like, man, what if something happens? That's okay. You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, something's maybe you'll lose a little bit of money. Now, of course, there's obviously degrees of, you know, control that you want to let go of. You got to keep your eye on the books and you got to make sure you're 
uh, performance standards are being met, your KPIs are being met, things like that. But if you lay that out and if you track that and measure it and hold your people accountable, it'll happen on its own. And you can focus on what we should be focusing on as leaders, which is creating opportunity uh, for others, for the people in our company, for the deals that we're looking at, for our investors, and for our trade partners out there in the industry. So a few more questions for you. We, we touched a little bit about KPIs. What are some KPIs or key performance indicators for people who haven't heard that term that, that you focus on? So, you know, the KPIs in, you know, a flipping business are going to be, you know, mostly related to, you know, the flipping business, let's say flipping business. Yeah. So let's just, yeah, let's take the you know, flipping business because that's going to be different than, you know, commercial. So if you're flipping houses or wholesaling, you know, you're going to have to spend money to market, right? Because really at the end of the day, you're a marketing company and you're transactional. So what you want to track is the marketing that you're doing and there's systems out there that will track, like say if you're mailing and you've got a seven piece mail campaign that goes out over a year, you want to have a different tracking phone number on each one of those mailers so that you know which one is performing best at what time. You want to be tracking that, you know, like a lot of people say, oh man, I, you know, I spend $10,000 a month and I get 100, 150 leads or 1200 leads or whatever it is. I'm not interested in leads. I'm interested in deals. So I track my KPIs are based on how many deals are coming into the pipeline on the money that I'm spending. And then, you know, so once you've tracked that for all of your marketing that you do, whether it's online, offline, direct mail, Facebook, whatever it is, uh, you want to have a tracking mechanism set up for each ad campaign so you know exactly the results that each ad campaign is bringing in. Then once that comes in, then you got to track, okay, how many leads turn into deals? So at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's kind of important, you, you, you know, KPI to look at how many leads are you generating overall, but really the most important thing, how many of those are turning into deals? And then when it comes to your acquisitions people, your, you know, inside sales agents, uh, whatever you use and however you use them, you know, you can track their performance by saying, okay, if you've got a thousand leads that typically generates, you know, X amount of conversations, which generates X amount of uh, contracts, you know, then you've got something that you can measure their performance by and say, look, we know if we throw you a thousand leads, you should get 10 contracts out of that. And if you're not, something's going wrong and we got to look at what that is and, and figure it out. Sometimes you can look at that, sometimes you can't. But those are really the main KPIs you're going to track in your marketing aspect of your business. Then you have your profitability KPIs. And, you know, of course, those go, go down to the, uh, to the deal level where if you're wholesaling, uh, you know, it is what it is. If you're flipping a house, uh, then you've got your maximum allowable offers, you've got your construction budgets, and you've got your, you know, back-end sales. So you can track that all the way down to the net-net. And then you have your overall business operation, and you want to really track your metrics and your business operation, your KPIs there, so that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people – a lot of people want to say, oh man, I'm, I've done 200 deals this year. I've done 500 deals this year. You know, that's great. What's your profitability? You know, what is your profit percentage on that? Because you really got to watch it because they're, you can fall into the trap of growing for growth's sake. And, you know, you could reach a point of diminishing returns if you're not careful and watching what you're doing and how you're doing it and really tracking your KPIs. The other thing I forgot to mention in direct mail that's really important is a lot of people use that shotgun approach and they buy a list and they just keep hitting it you know, there's a couple of things you really want to do. You're going to get, you want to keep that list clean as you go along so that you can work that list all the way through. So in other words, you keep track of, you know, who's responded and where that response went. Did it become a deal to become a leader? Is it something to follow up with in the future and keep that list, you know, pared down so that every year you can renew and, you know, or every month or whatever you're doing, you want to keep that list clean and you want to keep, you know, scrubbing that list so that you keep working it. The return mail, a lot of people are just discarding. 
return mail is a great um, cold calling list. So any of your return mail, you want to save those address, you know, skip trace those and then cold call them. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people just leave and they don't check their mail. If it's a foreclosure, vacant house, whatever, those can turn into some really good opportunities that a lot of people aren't taking advantage of. So those in a flipping business are, are your most important KPIs. You know, on the commercial side, it's a little bit different. Your KPIs are more deal oriented than they are, uh, you know, business overall, you know, orientation. You know, then you're looking at cap rates, internal rates return, you know, things like that. Well, thank you. This has been absolutely great advice for all of us here. And if there is an investor listening today who, who's maybe trying to get started, he's listened to everything you've done over 20 years, everything you've learned, everything you've worked on, what, what's an actual step they can take today to get started in any direction or any format of, of real estate investing? Well, you know, first thing is to get educated. There's a lot of great information out there, your podcast, you know, there's a lot of resources and tools, um, you know, for people to learn the business. So a lot of people say, oh, you don't need any education. You don't need any money. You don't need any, you need education. You need to know what you're doing. You need to have a general understanding of real estate. You need to know the numbers. The numbers are very important. You know, the truth is in the numbers. And if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. So you really need to know your numbers. And what I would say is start small. Okay. Pick a market close to home that you know, because again, you need to know at any given time, if you're in the residential world, how many houses are on the market for sale? How many under contract? How long have they been on the market? What's the list price to sale price? You really need to know your market. And when you can quote those numbers, single family, attached, multifamily, all those things, uh, then you start to know your business. So the first thing to do is to get to know your market, know what's going on, uh, go to real estate uh, meetups and meet other investors that are doing deals, uh, talk to other investors in the market, you know, ask questions, learn from them, and uh, talk to real estate agents you know, that are out there, try to find an agent that works with investors and that understands the game. Preferably if they're investing themselves, you know, that's, that's what you want to look for and, um, you know, line up the financing. So the, so, uh, you know, you, you don't need money. You can, you can, you know, contract a house without any money and sell that contract to another investor. But if you have resources and if you have uh, potential investors, you know, have them ready to go so that when you do find a deal, you can close quickly. You know, that's really the key, you know, to, especially in commercial, um, you know, that's really the key to getting, getting really good deals is, is keeping that powder dry and being ready to close. And you want to develop that reputation. The last thing you want to do is just go out there and start doing a bunch of contracts and not being able to close because, you know, people won't take you serious. So I'd say start small, start local, learn as much as you can, learn from other people, uh, you know, find a mentor. And I would be lean and outsource everything that you can. So, you know, the mantra out there is, man, I can do everything myself and I'm going to maximize every dollar on every deal. And maybe for the first one or two, if you don't know anything at all, you know, it's okay to sling a little, you know, paint on the wall or manage the subcontractors. You know, you can learn a lot doing that. You know, you'll know what's going on. But really the fastest way to scale and to stay ahead of the market is to outsource. Hire professionals, let them do their job. If I could do it all over again, I would have never started a building company. If I knew back then what I know now, I would have hired builders like I do now all the way along, all the way through. I would have had a whole lot more hair on my head right now if I'd have done that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Greg, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. For, for people that want to reach out, say hello, learn a little bit more about you, what's the best way to find you? Uh, yeah, so my website, gregdickerson.com. All my contact info is there, greg at gregdickerson.com. You know, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to, to help and, uh, you know, uh, talk about deals. Um, you know, I do joint ventures. Um, you know, uh, I always have... Uh, some great opportunities going on if people are looking to invest in deals, you know, whatever it is. So uh, I'm happy to help anytime. Feel free to reach out to uh, gregdickerson.com. Everything's, everything's there.
That's awesome. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show today. A ton of value here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. Perfect. Well, everybody listening, thank you to, for listening. And if you like what you hear, please go over to iTunes, give us a five-star rating and review. And thank you again for Greg Dickerson for giving us all this great value today. This is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Happy Wednesday. Talk shortly. Bye now. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.